you know, it might take, you know, years or decades to become, you know, an expert, like in a whole field, uh, 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 you know, and you might be very far from that, but it really doesn't take that long to become the world expert on one particular tiny little problem, right? And, um, you know, so, so try to, you know, become the world expert on, on something, you know, you know, even something very, very narrow. So Professor Aronson, can you tell us a bit about your early journey? You were a young prodigy, you graduated high school at the age of 15, got your PhD at 22. Can you tell us about um, that? Yeah, well, I, I didn't really graduate high school when I was 15. I got a GED uh, from, from, from New York State. Uh, but uh, I, um, I was not happy uh, in, in high school for, for several reasons. I mean, uh, just you know, socially, uh, academically, and I, I wanted to uh, get out. And uh, I mean, I, I, had a, I was in a weird situation because my um, I, I went to um, uh, public school uh, in, in the U.S. For, 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 for junior high and then in, in Pennsylvania, actually. And then my parents uh, uh, moved to Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong for one year uh, mm -hmm. because uh, my, my, my dad was working there. And uh, because of the uh, uh, miss, I went to an American international school there, but because of a mismatch between the way uh, they they did things in the U.S. and in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, I was not able to do math uh, that was that was uh, appropriate. I guess I, I you know I had always been sort of ahead in math, and uh, so the only way to deal with that was for me to skip uh, a grade and skip and, and and go to the high school. And once um, well, once once I had done that, that was that was sort of a uh, you know something something flipped for me, right? That, you know, I, I could actually do this. I could uh, uh, get out of this environment, you know, where, 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 where I really wanted to be was college, right? I wanted to be in a, um, in a, in a, in a place where, where, you know, uh, you know, and, 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 and of course, you know, I, I, I somewhat, uh, uh, you know, had, had, had an idealistic view of what college was, but, you know, but a, a place where, where ideas would matter more than popularity and uh, uh, where, um, you know, you would be able to choose uh, what to study and, and advance at your own pace and, you know, all of these, these wonderful things. Um, and, and, you know, so then I, went, I, I returned from Hong Kong to the U.S. and was in a, a public high school for, for a year. And, um, you know, as I said, I didn't like it. And, uh, you know, and, and then I, I ran out of math to take, right? I, I took the uh, um, AP uh, calculus and, and then um, the, um, uh, you know, my, my, my parents basically suggested to the school, uh, well, why doesn't he just uh, uh, do, do online learning, right? And do like uh, differential equations or whatever with the, the you know, the, the Stanford has this EPGY program, right? Where uh, you can do these things. And, uh, and, you know, my parents said they would pay for it. Uh, the school said, no, uh, that, that's, you know, uh, uh, um, and uh, so I, I sort of seized on that as my excuse. I, um, uh, um, uh, I, I, I think I had just seen a brochure for a place called the Clarkson School in upstate New York, 
which is a part of Clarkson University, but you can uh, live there for a year and take college courses. Um, you know, and, but it, it's it's uh, it's for high school students, right? Uh, so uh, um, I said, you know, I you know you know even knowing very little about this, I think you know I want I want to give this a try, and uh, my my uh, parents you know allowed me to do that. You know, we had the car all you know packed up to drive there, and while you know when we were uh, uh, about to leave, then finally you know there there was one you know, actually math teacher at my old high school who was very, very good and who was, you know, trying to advocate for me. And he was like, okay, I just, guess what? You know, I, I just got it so that, so that Scott can take the, uh, the EPGY program. And we said, too late, sorry. <laughs> uh, and um, so I, I, uh, I went to, to Clarkson and I, you know, and I, I generally had a very good experience there. Uh, I mean, um, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, socially, there were a lot of the same problems as at as at high school, but you know, at least you know, I was uh, uh, you know, I was able to take courses that were a lot more interesting. I was able to sort of meet professors, get started doing research, and uh, and you you apply from um, uh, you know, the the idea is that after a year at this Clarkson program, then you apply to colleges as a freshman. But you know, but with a year of college credit, so I uh, I did that. Um, you know, I was I was very you know just very disappointed in the time at the time at, at how things turned out because you know I got rejected from almost every college that I applied to. You know, I had a very weird background, but uh, I was lucky that that uh, Cornell and Carnegie Mellon were were kind enough to accept me, and um, so I, I decided to go to Cornell. But then there was one problem that they required a, a high school diploma before you could enroll there, which which I didn't have, uh, and so so we needed we realized that that I, I needed a, a GED from you know well well okay my 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 old high school you know uh, oftentimes one's old one one's old high school will just give you a diploma after you've gone to Clarkson. My high school would not do that because they said I was missing phys ed. I would have to you know spend the summer doing phys ed. But uh, um, uh, so, uh, you know, and, and then New York State said, uh, well, we can't give him a GED because you have to be 17 to have a GED and he's 15. Um, and and I, my, my mom eventually convinced them to, to make an exception and uh, give me a GED. So that, so I, so, so, so then I went to Cornell. I mean, I've met other people who were homeschooled, who, you know, actually did things that were more radical than, than what I did. I mean, I, I was accelerated by three years. You know, that was all. And then after I was in college, I didn't really accelerate anymore because, you know, I felt like I was, you know, in an environment, you know, where I, I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, from now on, the, the sort of the, the main limitations were, were internal. They were, they were no longer external. Mm. Was it intimidating being in classes with people three or four years older than you? Uh, the truth is, you know, uh, I would say the majority of them didn't even know that I was younger. If, if they knew, it was uh, uh, like in, uh, you know, maybe an uh, oddity a little bit, but then they didn't care that much, right? I mean, because, you know, it's, it's not like I was a 10-year-old, right? I was, uh, you know, I mean, by the time I started at Cornell, I was 16 by then. And, um, um you know, I, uh, um, uh, so, 
I, I feel like um, 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 ac um, academically it was fine. I mean, you know, the main issue was was social, right? I mean, you know, and my my parents had you know had warned me that okay, you know, if to uh, skip grades is going to completely screw up my social life, and uh, you know, it's going to make dating you know incredibly difficult, and 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 so on and so on. And I I sort of brushed all of that aside, you know, and my my. You know, I mean, uh, um, 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 you know, of, of, of course, that all turned out to be true. You know, and <laughs> I got I got my uh, PhD uh, before, basically before uh, I I learned how to drive, really, or 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 learned how to have any kind of a social life, you know, to speak of. I mean, or you know, any any kind of a dating life, really. Uh, but um, you know, I, I did things in a weird order, you could say, and 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 that did cause you know an, an enormous amount of, of stress for me. But but my main argument was that you know I was already socially unhappy in in high school, right? I was I I, I was already mm -hmm. miserable, you know, without having skipped grades, and so I felt like you know as long as I'm going to be miserable socially anyway, as it seemed at the time, you know, I would be that you know at least I could be learning stuff, at least. Uh, at least the mm. academics could be better. Yeah, and as far as the academics go, uh, what were the advantages and disadvantages of specializing so early? Well, I mean, I, I don't get to rerun my life multiple times and uh, and, and compare. Uh, um, but I, I think that um, um, you know, mainly, I'm, I'm I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to. Uh, you know, to sort of learn about stuff that 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 interested me, right? And and it was not it was not just you know that you know I I wanted to take only math and CS and nothing else, right? It was not like that. I mean, I uh, I took uh, uh, you know uh, uh, plenty of humanities in in, in college, right? And uh, uh, but you know I I wanted to uh, sort of have some some freedom to uh, you know I, I pick what to what to learn about, right? I mean, like in 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 high school, uh, you know, humanities means uh, you know the five paragraph essay, right? It means uh, uh, you know you basically have to regurgitate what the teacher wants from you, right? And you know if you try to you know do your own thing, write things in your own way, then you will actually fail, right? And uh, you know this is, I, I uh, learned this from experience. You know this is not uh, theoretical, right? Uh, and um, you know, so even 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 the humanities, right? I was a lot happier with in college than I was in high school. Uh, so it, so it wasn't just a matter of of specialization, but but partly it was. I mean, I think that by the age of uh, sixteen or so, I, I I knew what what I was passionate about. It was the fundamentals of of computing, right, and understanding what computers could or, or couldn't do. And I was ready to be to be learning about that and working on it. And um, you know, I think that there there is you know the 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 entire concept of you know of of sort of teenagerhood, right? That like people are are you know from the age of twelve to eighteen or now maybe even twenty or so are still basically children, right? I think that that's largely a modern construction, right? Huh. If you go back even a few hundred years. You know, by the time someone is a teenager, right, they're they're an apprentice, right? They can work. You know, uh, you know, they can be learning while they're also, you know, 
working or they can be they can be learning you know the the trade that they choose and um so 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 i think that that's that's actually natural right i, I, don't, I don't feel like i'm that unusual in that respect i think you know i mean you know maybe you know unusual in some respects but but not in 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 wanting to sort of get started with life when mm -hmm. uh, you know i was 15 or 16. Yeah, I had Tyler Cowen on the podcast and he started, um, the, the, he knew he wanted to be an economics professor basically in his early teens and he was reading and preparing for that um, from that time on. Economics professor is not what, you know, one often thinks of as like a, a child, you know, or an adolescent realizing that they want, but that is, in the case of Tyler Cowen, I could easily believe that. Is, is there some special advantage of learning the fundamentals of the field you know you're going to go into early on so instead of except for the fact that you just get more years to accumulate knowledge is there the special advantage of learning it in your early years you know i'm not sure it's a, it's a very interesting question i mean you know what one, one could imagine that you know while someone's brain is still developing right that it's it's good to be exposed to uh uh, certain things at, at that age and you know i mean i mean like we we we, we know examples that are like this Right, like you know, an obvious one would be learning languages, right? Where you know there there there's a window where you know children can just soak up languages, you know, like a sponge, and you know after that window, uh, okay, one you know you can learn a language, but it will be a difficult you know intellectual puzzle, and you'll never speak it as well as a as a as a native five year old will speak it, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Um, so it, it, it could be like that, but it, it could also be that, uh, you know, like our, 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 our brains are not uh, really ad adapted for, for learning any of this stuff, right? I mean, like, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, when we get to, you know, theoretical physics, theoretical computer science and, and so on, right? You know, all of it is, is, uh, is, is like, you know, learning a, a language that we don't natively speak. Right, and and on on that on that model, it would just be a, a question of getting a head start of, of you know of how much time you have to spend on it. Uh, I would I would love for someone to research that question because I I don't know the answer. I have heard uh, well, so you, as you know, like many of the important discoveries in quantum mechanics were made by people who at the time were very young, right? And th that's an interesting fact. Not only did they learn that stuff early on, but like they made those contributions early on. Yeah, but but that's not just quantum mechanics. I mean that's uh, uh, all over, you know, math and, and, and physics, right? There are, I mean, I mean, I mean, Newton was, uh, you know, about 22, mm -hmm. right? When he, uh, you know, had his miracle year, uh, you know, of uh, inventing calculus, you know, discovering the laws of mechanics. Um, yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I mean, you know, by, uh, I'm, I'm already old by the standards <laughs> of math and physics, right? You know, the, uh, um, uh, you know, which is, uh, which, which is weird to think about, but um, uh, but you know the, there there are also many examples of of you know great contributions that were made by people in their forties or fifties or sixties, right? Mm -hmm. So so you know so the, so that 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 that's another empirical question that I wonder about, right? Is it that people's brains actually slow down as they as they get older, or is it simply that they have less motivation or less free time? Right. I mean, like, like I, in, in my case, you know, ha having two kids, you know, has get clearly given me enormously less time for research. Right. And, you know, when, uh, like in those cases where I'm, you know, traveling, where I'm, you know, away from the kids for a week, you know, maybe like I can work again and it 
sudden, you know, it feels a lot like it did when I was in my 20s, right? It, uh, and so, um, you know, uh, yeah, and, 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 and then, and then the, there's also the, the issue of motivation, right? That like uh, when I was, uh, before I was established, you know, like my, my entire conception of myself, you know, my entire like uh, uh, goals for my life were wrapped up in, you know, succeeding in research, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, doing whatever it took. And now, you know, it's more like, you know, I, I have all kinds of other concerns. I have my own students uh, to worry about, you know, my, uh, my postdocs, my, my, my kids, of course, uh, my, my, my blog, you know, the popular things I write. And, you know, research just feels like one more thing that I do, right? That my, my identity is not as much wrapped up in. So, you know, I, 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 I may have also gotten dumber right? That, that's certainly possible, right? But, you know, it, it's hard to disentangle from those other factors. Yeah, you're, you're the third person, and I promise we'll get to the technical questions eventually, but you're, you're the third person I'm about, uh, on the podcast. I'm about to ask this question because it fascinates me. <laughs> Miracle years, as you mentioned, it, it's not just that, you know, people make like very important discoveries at young ages, <laughs> but they make lots of seemingly uncorrelated important discoveries at young ages. So as you know, like, uh, Einstein did um, Brownian mm -hmm. motion um, uh, with special relativity. But what was yeah. the third one? There were uh, two or three more. Well, well uh, there was the photoelectric. Effect. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and these don't seem, uh, superficially at least, to be related. And yet, they, it, it's interesting they happen in the same year. But what do you think explains that phenomenon? In 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 the case of Einstein, uh, I mean, you know, you're you're asking me to explain Einstein's miracle year. I mean, that's the, that's a, that's a that's a that's a tall order. I mean, I mean, one one can one can say certain things, like you know, one can say that you know, physics in the early 20th century was ripe for these you know for 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 these interrelated revolutions, right, of relativity and quantum mechanics, right? You know, I mean. You know, if it if it wasn't Einstein, it would have been someone else. You know, uh, uh, not long after, with all of those things. Um, general relativity, which you know, which took Einstein a decade longer. You know, that was the one thing where, if it hadn't been for Einstein, then you know, it, 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 for all we know, it might have been decades before anyone else did that. But uh, you know, the the um, you know the stuff that he did uh, in his. Uh, in, in, in 1905, I mean, you know, they were all things that physics was kind of ripe for. Maybe it took, you know, one person just looking at things in a sufficiently different way. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure really, but, uh, um, but, you know, but, but, but also it might be, you know, the confluence of all of those things is, is part of why, you know, we think of Einstein as Einstein. Right. You know, there were there were there were many other great physicists, you know, around the same time, you know, who may have done, you know, one or two things of that caliber. Right. But but, you know, uh, uh, but 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 only only Einstein does, right. does, does three does three or four of them. Yeah. I'm glad I'm glad you brought up uh, the topic of like uh, ideas being in the air and ready to pluck because uh, this is this leads me directly to the next question. I was uh, rereading the lecture notes from your quantum information science class, and hmm. there's the lecture on quantum teleportation. And you were answering, how, is it, why, how do people figure this kind of stuff out? And you say, it's worth pointing out that quantum mechanics was discovered in 1926, and that quantum teleportation was only discovered in the 90s. And yeah. of course, quantum computing, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of David Deutsch, and he discovered it, or he thought of it in the 80s. 
um, it seems like these ideas were ready to pluck, you know, back when quantum mechanics was uh, developed. Why did it take so long to have these ideas plucked? Yeah, that's a that's a that's an extremely interesting question. Um, I, I mean, you know, the 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 whole idea of of thinking about quantum entanglement you know, and not as something like metaphysically weird or, or you know, a, a, a spooky or, or basically how do we explain this away? How do we get rid of this? But in terms of how do we use it, right? How do we use it for, you know, to improve uh, uh, information processing, right? I think that, that's, that's a point of view that, uh, uh, as far as I know, really only started with, uh, with John Bell in the 1960s, right? With, uh, you know, Bell having this remarkable insight uh, that that you know you could you could you could do this uh, uh, experiment to test the prediction of entanglement and and distinguish it from any possible theory involving you know a local hidden variables, right? And uh, um, you know, and, and then um, a little bit later, uh, Stephen Wiesner, you know, had the idea of uh, um, uh, quantum money, right? Or using the uncertainty principle for cryptography. Although he was, again, he was not able to publish that until the 80s. Uh, and, you know, there are, there are a few things that I could say here. I mean, um, um, one is that when, when quantum mechanics was discovered in the, in the 20s, uh, it, it was not at all clear to the people who, who discovered it that this was sort of a, a final form that the laws of physics would take, right? You know, they thought, you know, I mean, uh, uh, that there was a, a large contingent that 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 thought that uh, you know this this is some you know uh, scheme that that sort of represents our current knowledge, but you know but clearly one one you know what what one has to improve on it, right? And then that, I mean that was very much Einstein's point of view, for example, and and, and I think also Schrodinger's, uh, and and then. Uh, you know, like Bohr and Heisenberg, uh, you know, they were very much, you know, opposed to to looking for something beyond quantum mechanics, but uh, um, but 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 sort of not, um, you know, they they like like they they sort of sort of not not in a way that was sort of you know in, inspiring more research about what you could do with quantum mechanics, right? They just wanted everyone to just sort of shut up. And stop, stop asking about these things, right? So you could say, you know, even though Bohr was right and and Einstein was wrong uh, on the issue of local hidden variables, uh, you know, there's a there's a deeper sense in which in which you know Einstein was the more right one and sort of putting his finger on, you know, there is something here that we do not yet understand and that we need to understand, mm -hmm. right? And you know, indeed, you know that. I'm sorry. Uh, and, you know, indeed, indeed, that 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 thing would not be understood really until until the discovery of the Bell inequality in the 60s. The other um, you know issue is that when quantum mechanics was was discovered and into the, the you know the the 30s, you know, there was so much to do in terms of you know figuring out how chemistry works. Right, so just applying quantum mechanics to understanding the real world around us, right? And uh, and and you could say on on the other side in computer science, you know, the in, I mean, for God's sakes, the entire notion of a universal computer was just being born, right? The whole note, you know, the whole field of classical computing was only just being born, right? So there was sort of so much 
you know, on the plates of both sides that, that uh, you know, it was, it, you know, it, it might have seemed wildly premature to anyone to, to combine the two, right? And then, uh, of course, World, World War II, you know, intervened, uh, uh, you know, um, um, you know, and, and uh, uh, the people who were doing fundamental science, a lot of them went to work, you know, either at the Manhattan Project or Bletchley Park. And, uh, you know, and then after that, I mean, I think the theoretical physicists were very uh, uh, focused on just, you know, this zoo of new particles that were being discovered and in formulating quantum field theory. You know, it was very, very much out of fashion for, for decades to think about the, you know, the, the fundamentals of quantum mechanics itself. And, you know, in the meantime, uh, um, um, you know, people were, were finally, you know, uh, building, uh, uh, commercializing, figuring out the uses for classical computers. That was a, you know, a very young area itself. And I mean, the, the entire theory of computational complexity, which, you know, is sort of an intellectual prerequisite to quantum computing, right? That only developed in the 1960s, right? You know, and then the theory of, you know, P and NP and NP completeness, that was only the 1970s, right? So, now, you know, if we think about, you know, the, the people who could have combined these, these fields, I mean, I, I think of, you know, I think of John von Neumann as an obvious possibility because he was, you know, of course, an, uh, uh, one of the, the great uh, uh, um, pioneers of both of computer science and of quantum mechanics, <laughs> right? In fact, you know, he invented the uh, notion of entropy of quantum states, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, uh, but, you know, he just, he had a lot of other things on his plate and then he died early. He died in the fifties, right? I mean, you know, Alan Turing was also, you know, of course, a, a you know, founder of computer science who was also uh, passionately interested in the foundations of quantum mechanics. You know, as we know from his, his letters uh, to his friends, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he died when he was 42. Right. And, uh, so, so, you know, what, what, whatever the case, you know, I, I feel like quantum mechanics and the theory of computing were both in place by the 1930s, but there was a lot of other stuff on people's plates. And, you know, the, the, the idea of, you know, thinking of entanglement as a resource, that only starts in the 60s. Computational complexity, that only starts in the 60s and 70s. And then, you know, maybe a decade after that, people start thinking about quantum computation. Interesting. Um, I've heard two other theories and I, I want to see how, what you think of them. So the yeah, first right, one right, is, right. I, I think I, I might be misquoting him, but I think at some point David Deutsch said, the reason he was able to think seriously about um, quantum computing was that he took the many worlds interpretation seriously. And because mm -hmm. people before him hadn't taken many worlds, mm -hmm. worlds seriously, mm -hmm. they hadn't been able to go quantum computing. And yeah. the second, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Go on, go on. Okay, I, maybe, 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 maybe should, should I respond to that one? Perhaps? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so that is definitely true for Deutsch, right? <laughs> and I know you know uh, uh, Deutsch well, you know, and, and you know, and he uh, uh, actually you know became a big believer in the many worlds interpretation when he was here at UT Austin, right? As a, as a student, as you know, and he he heard uh, Hugh Everett himself give a lecture about it. Uh, Bryce Dewitt, who was uh, 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 you know one of the main early proponents of the many worlds interpretation was also here at, at UC Austin and uh, had a big role, had a, had a big uh, influence on, on Deutsch. And, you know, and Deutsch was, was thinking about, uh, you know, how would you sort of make, you know, sort of 
shake people, how you sort of make them realize that quantum mechanics is universally valid, that it applies at all scales. Well, you know, if you could build a computer, right, that, uh, yeah. you know, could do a superposition over of different computations, and then you could see the results of interference between them, right, that at that point, conceptually, it is almost like making a superposition over, you know, a brain that can think different thoughts, right, yeah. and, uh, and then, you know, if, if you could have that, then, then, you know, the whole idea of the, uh, the, that observers collapse the wave function just by being observers is, is no longer tenable. But uh, so one, one problem is that um, Richard Feynman had the idea of quantum computing around the uh -huh. same time as Deutsch did, right? And Feynman, I mean, he was certainly aware of the many worlds interpretation. He was aware of Everett, but, but that was not his motivation for thinking about quantum computing. Uh, he was, you know, as, as usual, he, he was much more practically focused. He was thinking about how do we simulate uh, physics? You know, how do we simulate nature with a computer? And if we use classical computers, we suffer this exponential slowdown, right? And uh, so can we build a new kind of computer that will, that will solve that problem and give us a, a, a universal quantum simulator? Um, you know, I mean, people were, th th there was also a whole movement in the 70s and 80s to think about th the physics of computation, including like the, the thermodynamics of computation. Can you make computation inherently reversible, you know, and, and all kinds of other issues, right, that are, that, are, that are not about, you know, exponential speed ups. But that was also one of the intellectual streams that sort of led directly to, to quantum computation, right? So, so I think that what, what you said is very much true for Deutsch, but you know, there were others you know, besides Deutsch who were thinking about these things. Feynman was only one, there were, there were others as well. I think you know, Benioff uh, uh, you know, and several others. And um, you know, uh, um, you know, few, few people in this field are as, uh, are as uh, uh, um, um, uh, um, as, uh, as, as messianic as, as Deutsch is about the many worlds interpretation. It, it's interesting that, yeah. that uh, come to think of it, that both Deutsch and Turing were trying to solve a separate philosophical problem when they came up with their model of computation, um, or at least in part. Uh, okay, so the second theory I've heard is that uh, since the 1970s, that academia has been less open to new ideas. And you mentioned uh, Weisner, Everett, and both of them I understand were kind of, um, I don't know, look down, ostracized or something. Um, is there, is, has that, is that theory confirmed? Yeah, I think it, it, I mean, it, it is possible that in some parts of academia, you know, it has become harder to explore new ideas, you know, I, uh, than, than, it, than, it, than it once was. Um, you know, I could believe that about the social sciences. I could believe that you know, about parts of medicine, you know, people used to do just completely crazy things, just, you know, invent some new concoction, inject themselves with it, you know, see what happens, you know, write an article about it, you know, whereas today, you know, it might take like a billion dollars of investment before you could even get to the point where, you know, anyone would consider it remotely ethical to do such a thing, right? So, uh, on the other hand, in, um, in, in physics and, and uh, 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 let's say, uh, 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 you, know, um, uh, you know, speculation about, uh, uh, 
you know, the uh, uh, you know foundations of, uh, uh, of computing and 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 uh, and and and, uh, and and cosmology and things like that. I, I think if anything, things have gone in the opposite direction. Uh, and you know, and then this is partly because we, we now have this preprint server, this archive, where you know uh, uh, um, everyone can post you know all of their new research ideas, you know, with no filter, right? Uh, you know, and 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 I think that that is uh, that is somewhat transformed the the scientific landscape. Uh, um, you know, because I mean, we still have journals. But you know, journals are now just like a final stamp of approval. That you know, in, in many fields, is yeah. I mean, it's important when you're looking for jobs or things like that. But journals are no longer gatekeepers to you know that can sort of prevent people from seeing your paper, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so you know, if you just look at the quantum physics you know archive every day, you will see so many far out ideas, right? It is so much crazy stuff that it's, it's you know, it's very hard to believe that, that a modern day uh, Wiesner or, or Everett, you know, would feel any uh, mm -hmm. barrier to, you know, to getting their, their idea out there, right? I mean, today the, the problem is more that like there are so many, you know, bold new ideas that, you know, of course, you know, I'm, I'm, most of them won't go anywhere, right? Most of them will fail, right? And you know, and so there's there's so much to sift through if you're, you know, looking for what is what is what is actually going to be revolutionary. I'm sure your comment section and email fills up with these. But yeah. have you um, how how many of the important ideas or do many important ideas in the field come from people outside academia, or is it mostly the people with PhDs working within the system? Uh, well, okay. I mean, I mean, those are those are not. Uh, 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 exhaustive categories, right? Because you know there there are um, you know there 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 have been uh, breakthroughs that have come from people who are not in academia. Uh, uh, very often, what you find is that these are people who were sort of on the margin of academia, like they got a PhD and then they left, you know, the the academic world, or they. Uh, uh, they did part of a PhD or, 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 or things like that, right? There was a uh, um, famous case of Yi Tang Zhang, who was this mathematician from, from China, right? Who uh, uh, um, proved that, that there are infinitely many pairs of primes at most 70 million apart, right? Uh, which was, you know, a, a major advance in number theory, right? And this was a guy who had like he had gotten a PhD in math in China, I think, but then moved to the U.S. and then uh, worked um, uh, making and making sandwiches at Subway, oh. uh, you wow. know, just you know, in order to like support his family and and you know work uh, of, of various other odd jobs, but you know, but 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 continued working on math. Uh, so um, I don't, you know, I mean, I mean. Uh, you know, I, I, I hear all the time from, you know, people who are, who are like complete uh, autodidacts, you know, who, uh, you know, taught themselves the S and, and, you know, that they think that they've solved the P versus NP problem or whatever, right? I, I've, uh, uh, um, you know, that, that is, uh, uh, um, you know, that, that, that is usually someone who just doesn't understand the question, who has just made some, you know, uh, 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 um, you know, and, 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 and then, you know, I mean, there, there is a, a distinction because some, 
sometimes people, you know, uh, who, who sort of teach themselves the field, they just, you know, they, they really want to learn. They just want an expert to talk to, you know, who will tell them like, here's, here's where you're on the right track. Here's where, you know, you, you made a mistake and they will thank you for that, right? Other times you get people who really dig in their heels and, you know, you know, the establishment is, is censoring me and, uh, uh, you know, I had, uh, when, when, when I taught at MIT, I had, you know, someone uh, uh, like writing to the president of MIT <laughs> to try to get me fired. Uh, 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 you know, I had another one sending me death threats, you know, uh, because, um, um, you know, like very, you know, very specific, you know, I had to actually contact the police about them, uh, you know, because I would not publish their, you know, uh, uh, proof of P equals NP uh, or their refutation of quantum computing on my blog. Right. So you get you get you get you get the whole spectrum. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the, the other thing you, you find is, uh, uh, you know, there are, you know, and, and, and a lot of the readership of my blog comes from people who, who studied uh, technical subjects in college, studied CS or math or physics, and then went out into industry. Right. But maintain this connection you know, maintain their sort of curiosity about fundamental questions. And some of those people, uh, uh, you know, actually want to continue to do research. And uh, I'm actually uh, co-authoring a paper with one of them right now. Uh, you know, I posted this survey article about the busy beaver function uh, on my blog recently. And, uh, uh, you know, there was a, um, um, you know, I guess a, a hobbyist who, who solved some of the open problems really? in the survey and uh, yeah, and, and had a lot of new ideas and, and he and I are going to write a paper about it then. Oh, cool. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, by the way, is, is that strong the same one that uh, co-authored the Nielsen textbook on quantum information? No, 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 no. There, there's a, a Yitang Zhang and then there's a, uh, it was the mathematician and then Isaac Chuang. Oh, okay. is, the, uh, is the physicist who co-authored the Nielsen Chuang text. Okay, got it. my mistake. Yeah. Um, uh, so let me ask you about Vizzy Beaver. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was, is the proposition three was that uh, you can't. I, I have no memory for the numbering of propositions. So. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, so can, can you actually just explain what the Vizzy Beaver function is before I ask you these questions? Yeah, okay, sure. So, so the Vizzy Beaver function is a really, really remarkable uh, 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 sequence of, of hyper rapidly growing uh, integers, and the way that uh, we we define it, uh, you know, it was, so it was it was invented in 1962 by a mathematician named uh, Tibor Rado, and uh, and 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 basically what we do is um, what we what 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 we would like to say. Let me let me start with what we'd like to say. We'd like to say, you know, the um, uh, you know, if, if I want to name the biggest number that I could possibly think to define, then why not just say, you know, the biggest number that can be named using a thousand words or fewer, okay, or something like that, right? And but then uh, I have to be careful because there's an inherent paradox there, right? Which is I also could have said like one plus the biggest number that can be named with a thousand words or fewer, but then that, that, you know, I just named that with fewer than a thousand words, right? And so, uh, uh, um, so, 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 so from this, you know, the, the, the uh, conclusion that, uh, you know, logicians, philosophers drew more than a hundred years ago is that the concept of naming a number, you know, in English is not as clear as we think it is, right? It, it, 
it leads to paradox if you're if you're not careful about it. Uh, but but uh, uh, but but what 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 if we could uh, name a number in a way that was completely unambiguous? Uh, well, you know, since since Alan Turing in the 1930s, we have had such a way. That way is computer programs, right? Or, or Turing machines. And so we could say, um, think of the largest integer that can be generated by a computer program that is at most, let's say, a thousand bits in length. Okay, and uh, you know, now you have to be careful. What do you mean by, by, by that? Right? Because of course, a, a computer program could run forever, right? It could start to, it, you know, I could, we could easily write a program that says do print, not, print nine loop, right? And it would just print an infinite sequence of nines. So what we do is we restrict attention to those computer programs that eventually halt, right? We say among, let's say for a given N, we consider all of the possible computer programs that are N bits long and say there are two to the N power of them, or at most two to the N power, right? Many strings will just, uh, lead to, to things that are not even programmed, you know, they won't even compile, so we'll, we'll throw those away, right? Now, among all of the valid n-bit programs, some of them run forever. We just run them on a blank input, so we throw those away as well, right? We consider only the ones that eventually stop, and now among all of the ones that stop, we take the one that runs for the longest number of steps, the largest number of steps until it stops. And that number of steps, that is what we call the nth busy beaver number. Mm, yeah. Right? So, uh, uh, so, 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 so the way that Rado defined this was using Turing machines, which is just one particular programming language, the one invented by Alan Turing in the 1930s. He said busy beaver of n is the largest finite number of steps that any n state Turing machine can run for. Okay. And uh, uh, this, so, 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 you know, the, 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 the amazing thing is that one can prove that this function grows faster than any computable function, right? So, uh, uh, so, you know, no matter what, uh, 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 you know, sequence of integers, you know, you can, uh, you know, basically, uh, uh, if, if you are, are in a contest to name, uh, name the largest number, and if you say busy beaver of a thousand, then you will utterly destroy any opponent who doesn't know about the busy beaver function or about anything similar to it. Okay, so um, uh, you know, so well, yeah, one one can say further remarkable things about this function, like that you know only a finite number of values of the function can actually uh, uh, be proven uh, from the axioms of set theory, right? For reasons of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Basically, uh, uh, after a certain finite point, you know, the, the values of this function, you know, we, we can, we, well, you know, presumably it has definite values, right? Because it's a, this clearly defined function and yet we could, we could no longer prove what they are. Okay, so, so right now only, you know, if you, if you look, if you take the busy beaver function as Rado defined it in the 60s, only four values of the function are known. Okay, that busy beaver of one is one, busy beaver of two is six, busy beaver of three is 21, and busy beaver of four is uh, 107. Busy beaver of five, it is only known that it's at least 47 million. Okay, <laughs> you know, and we, we don't know how much bigger it might be. Busy beaver of six, 
uh, it's at least in about 10 to the 36,000. Okay, might be much bigger. Busy Beaver of seven, uh, it's at least 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 18 million. You know, and then it might be enormously larger still. Okay, just to just to give people an idea of, of how this function grows. Yeah, yeah. And uh, by the way, I recommend everybody who's listening to uh, check out the Busy Beaver Frontier paper because it was written in such a way that I also want to ask you how you uh, learned to write so well. It was written in such a way so that non-expert like me could understand it. And um, just to clarify from my own understanding, it's not that a busy, for, uh, there isn't a function that for any n is greater than busy beaver of n. It's just well, that it, it won't, it, busy beaver will eventually, be, with more states than, if you have to right. I mean, that, that function, well, it will grow that, bigger. That, that, that's exactly what I meant when I said grows faster than. Right. right? I yeah. mean, each particular value of busy beaver is just some positive integer, right? Yeah. It's this very concrete thing, right? You know, like it's six or it's 21, right? But, you know, if you look at the rate of growth of these integers, right, it will dominate, eventually dominate any computable function. Right. And, 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 and in practice, not just eventually, but very, very quickly. Yeah. And you show very elegantly in the paper that that means you can independently prove the halting problem and Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm um, looking at. I mean, I mean, I mean, like the uh, the the unsolvability of the halting problem, Gödel's theorem. Like these things are so intertwined that like there are many, many different way, you know ways to prove them all, right? But the the busy beaver function gives you one way that yeah you can prove. Uh, that you know that you you can you can use it to prove independently that there is an uncomputable function. Uh, you can use it to prove Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Right. Okay. Uh, so my the proposition three was the one that said um, okay that for any axiomatic theory you can't prove all of busy beaver with it. Um, right. But so my question was, um, can you keep even though there's no systematic way to extend our set theory? Is there plausibly a way that you can keep extending it uh, such that you can prove higher and higher values of busy beaver? Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Uh, um, you know, we, we, I, I, I would say we, we, we don't really know yet, right? Because right now we can't even pin down busy beaver of five. Okay. Uh, I mean, now, now, now my, my guess would be that the, the, the resources of, of, you know, existing set theory are, are, are perfectly enough to do that, right? But, but you know, we don't even know that, right? So, I, so four years ago, uh, uh, a, um, uh, a student of mine uh, named uh, Adam Yadidia and I uh, decided to, uh, you know, look into a question that for some reason no one had looked at before, which was, uh, 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 you know, at like, what is the smallest n for which we can actually prove that the value of busy beaver of n is independent of set theory, right? Like it was clear that there is some n for which mm -hmm. this is true, but are we talking about 10 million or are we talking about 10, right? So, uh, so, so in practice, what this problem boils down to is, is, is almost like software engineering. Like you have to construct a Turing machine that uh, checks all of the theorems of set theory and it halts only if it finds a contradiction, right? And you have to build such a Turing machine with as few states as possible, mm -hmm. right? If you can build such a machine with only uh, n states, then you've proven that the uh, uh, that set theory cannot determine the value of busy beaver of n. 
because if it did, then it would thereby determine its own consistency, which is exactly what Gödel's theorem does not allow, right? So, um, so what we managed to do is we managed to find such a machine with 8,000 states, okay, about 8,000 states. You know, that was after a lot of optimization, right? And, you know, a lot of coding and, 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 and uh, engineering and, and, new, and, and ideas, right? Uh, since then, uh, uh, a, uh, again, a, 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 a hobbyist, to come back to your earlier question, someone outside of, uh, academia by the name of Stefan O'Rear, uh, has managed to improve our bound and got it to under 800 states. Yeah. Okay. And that, that is the current record. Now, if you could get that down to like, you know, you know, I, I, you know it, it is a wonderful question. Could you get it down to like 10 states or something like that, right? And, you know, that, that would tell us that we have to already go beyond the current axioms of set theory, you know, even to just get the next few values of the busy beaver function, right? But maybe not. Maybe, maybe, maybe you can even get 100 of them with, with, with existing set theory, right? We, we, we don't know. Now, what you can do is, um, you know, you know, at, 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 at whatever point, you know, ZF set, Zermelo-Frankel set theory, you know, which is the, the, the accepted basis for, for, you know, most of math, at whatever point it runs out of steam, which, you know, we don't know exactly where that point is, but one can then extend it by what are called large cardinal axioms, right, which basically assert that there exists an infinity that is bigger than any infinity that can be defined in ZF set theory, right? Or, you know, you can, you can say, you know, you know, um, you know, or infinities of various particular kinds, right? And, uh, you know, and, 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 and presumably one could then settle more values of the busy beaver function that way, right? But, but the issue is, you know, no matter what set theory you think of, right? As soon as you can build a Turing machine that enumerates all of the theorems of that set theory, then however many states there are in that Turing machine, that then sets a bound on how many busy beaver numbers right. that set theory can ever determine. Yeah. Right? So, so in some sense, the, the set theories that can determine more and more busy beaver numbers will have to become more and more complicated. Right. 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 We, 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 we know that. Uh, and, uh, and, and as, as you said, right, there will never be a systematic way to search for, for them, because if there were, then that would make the busy beaver function computable. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and, and what it means for there to be no systematic way to search is that, you know, you could, we could keep like proposing more and more set theories. And, and if, if you look at modern, you know, uh, mathematical logic, set theorists do this, right? They do propose more and more large cardinal axioms, but sometimes they actually discover that their axioms are inconsistent, right? Or, you know, they, they sort of uh, provisionally, you know, adopt an axiom or use it, but the community is not really convinced that, that it won't lead to an inconsistency, right? So that, you know, there's no surefire way to think of these axioms and, and be confident that, that, that you know, uh, uh, that, 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 that you actually still have a consistent system. Mm. Okay, L let me offer yeah. a very, very thought experiment. Uh, yeah. Okay, so um, this is inspired by that joke that if you shoot enough sunlight at the earth, it'll shoot, it'll shoot a Tesla back, right? Uh, okay, so the, the idea is 
Um, if the Turing principle is true, you can simulate the Earth and uh, the solar system and everything on a very incomprehensibly big computer, right? Mm -hmm. um, with all the humans on given, it. Given, given, given the appropriate initial data. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so yeah. It, it, simulating all that is a computable function. And yeah. if you can check in like every hundred years and see what is the biggest busy beaver number that humans have proven th this century, what is the biggest busy beaver number proven hundred centuries? Is that not a computable function where that uh, tells you busy beaver of n indefinitely higher as long uh, as you well, can well, it, 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 it would give you a way to compute arbitrary values of the busy beaver function if humans were indeed to to continue, uh, uh, you know, you could say uh, 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 under the assumptions. That number one, you know, the uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, ev ev everything in, in our physical world is computable. I mean, you know, we 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 let that you, you and I just let that assumption pass almost without comment, right? Although, you know, of course, that's an enormous question in itself, right? With some brilliant people like like Penrose on the on the other side of that. But all right, but but you know, and and then. So assuming that that you know uh, uh, everything we're doing is computable, and also assuming that we could somehow you know continue finding more and more values of the busy beaver function indefinitely, right? If that were true, then we would have a contradiction. Yeah. 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 So so yeah. then either everything so, is not it's the, either you, the Turing principle is false or we can't indefinitely keep extending. Yeah something. yeah you could yeah you you could say a, a a very conservative way out would be to say well you know our quest to compute more and more busy beaver numbers will come to an end. Right. Okay. That's very interesting. And yeah. You know, and in fact, in fact, there there has not been a another busy beaver number determined since the early 1980s. Yeah, that's interesting. Which is um, when which is when busy beaver four was pinned down. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm looking forward to the yeah. uh, paper you published with the um, with the okay. hobbyists. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bru Bru Bruce Smith is his name. Bruce Smith. Okay. Very interesting. Um, okay. So let me ask you now. Uh, uh, I, I remember in class last year you said you know that basically we have a very a few very important quantum algorithms like Grover's and Shor's that were discovered in the 90s and now a lot of stuff now is just an extension of those algorithms. What do you think is the potential of finding, is there a good reason to think that there are other quantum algorithms to be discovered that are as fundamental and important as Grover's and Shor's were? I would, I would love it if there were, right? I, I'd, be, I'd be thrilled uh, to, you know, discover such an algorithm, have one of my students discover it, right? You know, this is, this is, uh, um, you know, what well, I, you know, I mean, that, I mean, that, that's the kind of discovery that we, that we enter this field for, right? I mean, you know, now, now, uh, um, you know, if, 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 if we're, we were being intellectually honest, you know, we have to admit that, you know, it, it's been 25 years since Grover's algorithm was discovered, right? And, uh, you know, you know, maybe maybe no other quantum algorithm as fundamental as Shor's or Grover's has been discovered. You know, in the last 25 years, uh, uh, what we have um, discovered, uh, you know, as you as you learned, because uh, uh, you took my class, uh, was uh, you know a lot of you know an enormous number of generalizations and new applications and variations of of Shor's and Grover's algorithms. Uh, uh, you know, including what are called quantum walk algorithms, uh, including, um, you know, phase estimation based algorithms. Um, and, 
you know, and, 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 and some, some totally different quantum algorithms were also discovered, although, you know, the problems they solve are maybe more abstruse, right? Or, you know, hard, you know, it, it, it's harder to explain what, what problem they're, 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 they're solving. Uh, and, you know, so, so, you know, you could, you could wonder, you know, is it, is it, is it lack of imagination on, 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 uh, on our part, or is it, you know, I mean, I, the, 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 the you know, another uh, possibility uh, is, you know, if you look at the history of classical computer science, you know, what you find is that there are a few basic techniques that were discovered very early on in the history of classical CS. One of them is dynamic programming, mm -hmm. right? like, uh, uh, you know, dividing, you know, breaking down your problem, like recursively into sub problems, right? I mean, we could say, you know, in general recursion, right? Solve, you know, divide and conquer, uh, greedy algorithms, uh, you know, uh, uh, convex programming, you know, linear programming, right. uh, you know, uh, um, 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 Gaussian elimination, right? Uh, and, you know, and, 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 and most of the, you know, I mean, the field of classical algorithms is enormous. And yet, you know, most of the classical algorithms that we know are somehow built up out of these motifs that are just, that were discovered very early on, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we don't normally think of that as a failure of classical algorithms, right? We just think of it as, you know, there are these fundamental features of the algorithmic universe that, you know, that people noticed as soon as they started looking, right? And then, you know, and then, you know, you can go much further, but, but you go much further by, by building on the basic things that you have, right? And so, so, uh, so, so maybe we should think of Shor's algorithm and Grover's algorithm, not as just specific algorithms, but as sort of some of the basic mm. design motifs of the world of quantum algorithms. I and see. then, you know, it's not, it's not surprising that they were discovered very early on, just like dynamic programming was discovered, you know, right at the beginning of the history of classical algorithms. Mm. So, um, uh, you know, so, you know, I mean, I mean, that's, 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 that's one point of view. Now, another point of view is, you know, if like when, when people ask for, for more quantum algorithms, or, you know, they'll say they, 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 they hold us to account for our failure to discover more quantum algorithms. You know, I, I like to answer that question with another question, which is, well, 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 what are the problems that you would like these algorithms for, right? And, and amazingly, that, that, that question almost always stops, you know, they ask it, right? Because like they didn't even, you know, well, well uh, because, because no matter what problem they name, you know, there's an excellent chance that people in quantum algorithms have thought about it, you know, and we know, you know, something about how much speed up you can get from a Grover type algorithm, you know, but uh, we have good reasons to think that you're not going to be able to get better than that. Or, you know, I mean, or, you know, we, or, or we say, well, maybe there's like, if, if in the case of the graph isomorphism problem, yeah, sure, maybe there's a polynomial time quantum algorithm, but probably just because there's a polynomial time classical algorithm, right? And that, that you know, and it's just, it's that that hasn't been discovered yet, right? Although, you know, there, there's been major progress toward it. Uh, so, so uh, you know, no matter what problem they name, right? I mean, probably someone has studied it in the context of quantum algorithms. And I could then tell them for that problem, you know, exactly what is the current situation and, you know, uh, what, what are people stuck on? You know, and, and so, 
it might be that if we want to discover fundamentally new quantum algorithms, that the way to do it will be to realize fundamentally new problems, right? Problems that people hadn't even thought about des designing an algorithm for, you know, uh, previously, right? You know, the way, um, you know, another thing, you know, another way that I like to put it is, you know, like, like in, in any, you know, in any given area of math or science, right, there is this phenomenon of low-hanging fruit that gets picked very, very early on, right, and, uh, and then those of us who come into the field a little bit later have to jump, have to leap higher, you know, if, if we want to uh, uh, find any fruit, right, but uh, the, you know, I think the, the, the ultimate solution to the problem of low-hanging fruit being picked is to find a new orchard, you know, <laughs> and uh, so, so, you know, figure out uh, what are, you know, potential problems that quantum computers could solve that, 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 that no one has been thinking about uh, before. You know, maybe people actually starting to get quantum computers as they finally are today that they can experiment with will help stimulate the discovery of those you know, new problems or new applications. Just like with Grover's algorithm, is there some reason to expect that from from first principles, there are other algorithms that can be solved by uh, quantum uh, algorithms. Yeah, so so it, it is, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, like anything where it's sort of as basic as Grover's algorithm that you just look at, uh, you know, the way that amplitudes are changing over time and think that an algorithm is going to exist, right? That probably would have been snapped up by now, just because quantum algorithms have become so much more sophisticated. Uh, compared to what they were 25 years ago, okay? But there are some problems where uh, uh, there's some evidence that a quantum algorithm might exist, uh, even though we don't, we don't yet know it, if, if it does exist. A good example is computing the edit distance between two strings, right? Which means the minimum number of uh, insertions and deletions and changes that I have to make to change one string to another string. This is a fundamental problem uh, for a DNA sequence alignment, for example. Uh, the best known algorithm for it takes quadratic time. It's based on dynamic programming, in fact. Uh, and you know, there is some evidence that there might be a quantum algorithm that would take n to the three halves time or something like that. But, but if so, uh, it has not yet been discovered. Mm. So, um, so, 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 so so there are cases like that. Um, um, no. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I, the next question I wanted to ask you was, why do many of the important discoveries, not just in this field, but in many other fields, come from closely communicating groups of collaborators or people within such groups? Um, you said on Sean Carroll's podcast that uh, 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 Shore and Grover were collaborators at Bell Labs. And well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that they actually were collaborators. I mean, they, they, uh, they, they worked in the same building, I believe, you know, I think they, they, you know, you know, I think the, the discovery of Shor's algorithm created a lot of excitement, you know, uh, well, you know, all over the place, but certainly at Bell Labs, which is where Shor was, right? And I think that Grover, who worked also at Bell Labs, but in a completely different department, I think he was affected by that excitement. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not even, uh, uh, I'm not even sure if, if, if they knew each other prior to Grover's discovery of Grover's oh, okay. but, uh, um, I could, I could, I could, I could ask them that, but, uh, <laughs> uh, 
Um, but, but, you know, I mean, more, more broadly, uh, you know, it is certainly true that uh, in the history of, of, of ideas, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, major innovations seem to come in clusters all the time. Bell Labs was a huge example of that, right? I mean, the, uh, um, um, you know, the Shores and Grover's algorithms were really, really at the tail end, right, of the, you know, the, the heyday of Bell Labs, right, which was mostly the, uh, 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 you know, the, uh, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, right, but I mean, uh, you know, you had the invention of the transistor, you know, of the communication satellite, uh, and so many other things, right, uh, from this, this one place. Um, uh, um, you know, another example uh, uh, would be, um, um, you know, I mean, you, we, you know, we could take uh, um, Athens and the ancient world, right? We could take uh, Florence. Uh, we could we could look at uh, a Cambridge University, right? Right. Uh, say, you know, at the, the the turn of the 20th century, right? That had just so many mathematicians, economists, uh, philosophers, uh, physicists who who revolutionized the world. Uh, now, uh, uh, you know, this might be because, you know, something about the environment, right? That, uh, 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 you know, that, that uh, um, um, you know, ideas bounce off of each other, right? People see something, they, they see someone achieve something spectacular and they're either, you know, inspired by that or they they uh, uh, they they view it as a challenge. You know, they they want to compete against that and come up with their own thing, right? You know, a, a, a Silicon Valley, sort of, you know, would be another big example, although more for technology than for science, right? Uh, uh, so that that would that would be one one explanation, and a different explanation would be that you know these these certain places at certain points in time just you know attract all of the people. Who, who, you know, maybe anyway would have had these great ideas, but, you know, that kind of person wants to go to these, you know, these, these centers, you know, wherever they are. And so, 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 so these centers will just collect the kind of people who were likely to discover these things. Right. Correlation doesn't equal causation in this case. Okay. All right. Uh, let me ask you now, I've interviewed a, a lot of economists on this podcast. I think this uh -huh. question will be interesting to the listeners. Uh -huh. In your uh, paper on why philosophers should care about complexity, um, mm -hmm. you talk about how the difficulty in finding Nash equilibria might be relevant to discussions on economics. Can you explain? Uh, can you explain this? Yeah. Okay. So, so there was a uh, big advance in theoretical computer science uh, 14 years ago, when uh, it, it was uh, uh, the uh, 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 theoretical evidence was finally uh, discovered for why computing a Nash equilibrium is a hard problem, basically. Uh, yeah, and th th this, this confirmed a, a suspicion that people had had for a long time, right? Because, uh, you know, if we look at uh, a, a von Neumann equilibrium, right, which is like an equilibrium of a, uh, um, let's say, of, of a, of a two-player zero-sum game, right? Then, you know, this can be found easily, you know, using linear programming, okay? Um, but uh, a, a Nash equilibrium is somehow a more complicated beast, right? And uh, uh, it's, you know, it, you know, the way that Nash proved that they exist in the 50s was uh, using the, uh, what's called the Kakutani fixed point theorem, right? It's some 
fixed point theorem from uh, topology. Uh, and, and if you try to actually unwind the existence proof into an actual algorithm to calculate the equilibrium, then what you get is an algorithm that ends up taking exponential time, right? It, you know, it eventually hits the equilibrium, but it, it you know, it, it, uh, it may have to follow an exponentially long trail before it reaches it. Uh, if you're interested in this, the best, by far the best things that have been written about it, I think, are by, by Christos Papadimitriou. Uh, who uh, and um, and um, Papa Dimitriou was one of the discoverers in the uh, 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 in 2006, uh, along with Goldberg and Das Kalakis, of this this hardness theorem, which you know it doesn't prove that it's hard to find a Nash equilibrium. In fact, doesn't even prove that it's NP-hard. Uh, this problem kind of doesn't have the right structure to be an NP-complete problem. Uh, just because of Nash's theorem that tells us that a Nash equilibrium always exists, right? Like in order to be NP-complete in any way that we currently under, understand, there has, to, there has to be a decision problem. You know, is, is there a solution or is there not a solution, right? But for finding a Nash equilibrium, there always is a solution, right? There's, there's, there's only the problem of how to find it. Um, but what was shown is that basically finding a Nash equilibrium is at least as hard as any other problem uh, for, for which you know a solution is guaranteed to exist because of the same kinds of principles. Okay. okay. So, uh, so it's sort of it, it is complete for that complexity class of problems for which you know a solution is guaranteed to exist for this for this sort of reason. So you know what does this mean for for economics? Yes. Well it, it, it's not clear, right? Uh, if it has a Sort of direct implication, but it, it sort of it, it fits into this general narrative of uh, you know just because an equilibrium exists, you know that's that's not the end of the story, right? I mean, you know, if, if the market can't actually find the equilibrium, right? In in any, or you could say, you know, if, if if calculating this equilibrium would take exponential time, then we shouldn't expect the market to be able to find it either, right? And so uh, you know now now e economists are are well aware right that that there are these issues right that that you know uh, uh, you know people are not perfectly rational you know even if even if they want to be perfectly rational which they don't always uh, you know being perfectly rational might involve computations that they're just not able to do right and 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 you know and, and they've they've you know, with varying degrees of success, you know, they've tried to account for such phenomena. But, you know, I would say, you know, the, the, the you know, Nash equilibria are so central to economic theory, right, that, you know, the hardness of finding Nash equilibria, I think, you know, is a, uh, um, you know, maybe, maybe a, a non-trivial result, you know, of underscoring that, that general point. That, that, that's incredibly interesting. Uh, but, but do you think uh, Hayek's knowledge problem or the way he phrased it might be related to uh, uh, complexity as well? So in terms of like uh, central planning in order to satisfy some constraints yeah. set by bureaucrats might be like an NP-complete problem where it's like- Well, I, you know, I, 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 want, I, want, I, I want to separate two, uh, two different things, right? One is lack of knowledge, right? Uh, about what is going on in the economy so forth. And the other one is lack of ability to do computations on the knowledge that you have, right? Mm. So, so you know, the 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 hardness of Nash equilibria is talking about the latter issue, 
Yeah, right? I see what you're saying. I mean, you know, they're 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 related in a way, right? They're both, you know, they're 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 both different kinds of deviations from perfect omniscience, right? But they're but they're different kinds of deviations from from omniscience. And you know, in 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 theoretical computer science, you know, very very often we have to distinguish them. Uh, so. Uh, um, you know, I mean, often like people will ask me if some problem is, you know, is or isn't NP complete when, you know, what they what they really mean is like, how hard is it to collect the information, right? Which is, you know, it's, it's kind of like a apples and oranges. It's a, it's a category mistake, right? Once, you know, it's for, for like to even talk about whether a problem is in P or is in NP or whatever, we assume that an input is given to you, right? So all of the information that you need, you know, you have it in front of you. And then, you know, we are exclusively concerned with the difficulty of calculating something about that information, right? Uh, now, there is, there is also, you know, the, the difficulty that, uh, uh, you know, people who are in, uh, uh, you know, um, economic actors, you know, don't uh, have the information that they need or, or certainly central planners you know, don't have the information that they need, right? And there's act there actually is a whole subfield of economics, you know, that's the economics of information, right? How much do you pay to, to learn something about, you know, what is going on? Or how do you hold a, a, how do you design an auction in a way that you elicit the information that you want from the participants in the auction and things like that? I think that economists may be have an easier time dealing with those things or, you know, th that stuff has been better integrated into economics than the computational considerations. Mm. Have been. Okay, that, that's incredibly interesting. Um, I, just a few more questions. Um, okay, sure. Yeah, I'm going to bring us back to um, uh, David Deutsch and creativity. Uh, okay. In the Ask Me Anything chapter of Quantum Computing Since Democritus, um, yes. you have a student ask you uh, what, what complexity classes creativity in, and you say, uh, uh, well, part of what you say is, um, we've got a billion years of natural selection giving us a very good toolbox of heuristics of solving certain kinds of search problems, like problems in NP. Um, but it, that makes it kind of sound like we have more heuristics to solve these problems than chimpanzees do. Chimpanzees have more than ants. Uh, I don't know if this is how you meant it, but do you see like the algorithm for creativity as a thing you have or you don't have? Uh, or is it like you, you just have better heuristics for searching through different... I, I don't... I don't, I don't know that there is such a thing as the algorithm for creativity, right? right. In fact, you know, the, you know, it, you know it, it, the, the phrase is almost oxymoronic, right? That if, if there were such an algorithm, well, then whatever it output would no longer be creative, would it? Because it would just be the output of that algorithm, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think that, uh, um, you know, the, uh, uh, you know it, 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 it seems like there is such a thing as, you know, general purpose reasoning ability or general purpose ability to invent creative solutions to problems, which, uh, you know, let's say, you know, uh, Einstein had more of than some random person off the street, uh, but the random person off the street has more of than a chimpanzee and a chimpanzee has more of than an ant. But it is somehow very, very hard to to articulate what we mean by that, you know, in in a way that would actually support these, you know, comparisons across, you know, vastly different evolutionary histories and and goals in life and all, all these things. Do you do, uh, from the beginning of infinity? Do you buy David Deutsch's uh, 
term a universal explainer, that people are universal explainers, AIs will be universal explainers, but uh, non-human animals aren't, and that's like the only demarcation that matters. Um, I, yeah, I think um, Deutsch is like, he's inc like in incredibly optimistic and also incredibly categorical in his thinking, right? You know, I don't know anyone else who is sort of as optimistic or, you know, and, and hardly anyone else who is as black and white, right? Uh, I mean, I, I um, uh, you know, it, 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 it does seem likely that there is some kind of threshold that you cross in going from a chimpanzee to a human, right? Where like, yes, it, you know, a chimpanzee is smarter than a cow, right? But like, you know, if you, you stare at both of them, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, the chimpanzee is noticeably closer than the cow is to you know, being able to land on the moon, right? Or or uh, or or um, um, prove from Oslo's theorem, right? Or, or or any of these things, right? And uh, uh, you know, with with um, 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 humans, you know, you you had like a in 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 succession, you had you know a few you know extremely important milestones that you know that had not been crossed before in the in the animal kingdom, right? You have uh, universality of, of, of language, right? You, have, you know, I mean, the, the, the ability to have a recursive language that can sort of, uh, um, um, you know, uh, express thoughts of, you know, uh, uh, unbounded complexity. Uh, you had, uh, you know, the, the, the invention of, of, of writing, you know, the ability to transmit those thoughts across generations. Uh, you know the the uh, um, um, you know a number system that could refer to, to arbitrarily large numbers. You know, and then you know uh, 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 computers. You know, which are which are universal machines, right? The ability to uh, build these kinds of machines, and you know, and all of this went along with you know being able to explain the world around us uh, in you know in in uh, you know in in explicit theories. You know, to uh, uh, you know, to to an extent that, that no animal species, no other animal species, uh, uh, was ever able to do. Um, having said that, you know, I don't I don't actually know uh, if people are, are are universal explainers. That is, you know, I I I, I have um, you know uh, uh, I, I, I I have no idea if we can explain everything. Or even if we can explain everything that is explainable, uh, you know, I, I of course I, I hope that we will continue being able to explain a lot more than than we can explain right now, right? But I mean, you know, Deutsch, you know, uses words in unusual ways, like he, uh, um, like like when he 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 talks about why he is so optimistic. You know, part of his optimism is like you know when he uses the word people, he also includes extraterrestrials, right? So he says like, oh yeah, you know, it's possible that humans on Earth will just all kill themselves out. You know, there will be a nuclear war or an environmental catastrophe, but that's not a big deal because people, in the broader sense of you know life elsewhere in the universe, will will uh, go and do all of the amazing things anyway that we would have done. I mean, that that may be called comfort. To, uh, to 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 most of us here on Earth, right? And so when he when he says something like people are universal explainers, you know, you always have to press him on, you know, not only what does he mean by a universal explainer, but even what does he mean by people.
Right. Uh, his claim on the universal explainer part is that um, just as many worlds is the most parsimonious way to describe quantum mechanics, so you don't have to like postulate an arbitrary, uh, uh, you know, collapse. Uh, since we have no reason to expect there's thing, since we have no proof that there are things we cannot explain, the most parsimonious explanation is that we can explain everything. Okay, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there are, there, there are certain questions like, like the hard problem of consciousness, let's say, or the question, question of what, why is there a universe at all? Where, you know, it's not just that we don't have an explanation, it's that the, the mind sort of spins in circles when we try to contemplate what could possibly consist of an explanation, right? What, 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 what could an explanation possibly look like even in principle, right? Uh, you know, that, 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 that could just be a lack of imagination, right? But, you know, it, it could be that there are, you know, I mean, I mean, like, like we, we all know, you know, the two-year-old who just, you know, you, you know, asks why, and then you tell them, and they ask why, and you tell them, and, you know, and, and, and they ask why, and, you know, after, after, you know, a, a, a half dozen whys, you know, you're all the way back at the Big Bang, right? <laughs> you know, you're, you're back at, uh, 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 you know, the, uh, um, um, the, the, the beginning of the universe and, you know, they, they continue asking why, right? And, and, and uh, it, 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 it could be that, you know, there are, there are questions with, with the property that, you know, that every, um, 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 so, okay, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean first of all, you know, uh, I think even, even Deutsch thinks that, that we will not, you know that there is no one time where we'll have an explanation of everything, right? Because mm -hmm. because Deutsch, you know, says that that each uh, uh, each each question that we answer will lead to further questions, right? You know, each each time you explain something, uh, you know, there's there's then the question of you know whatever the explanation is based on, you know, why is that, right? So just like that two-year-old, right? We can always dig deeper and deeper. Okay, but now. You know, just to just to loop back to earlier in this conversation, like if we think about the busy beaver function, right? We know that you know it's not just that uh, um, uh, you know, like with 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 uh, uh, um, you know, you need more and more resources to to compute more and more values of the busy beaver function, and so you'll never know all of them. It's that there are fixed values, like busy beaver of 800, right? Where the the existing axioms of set theory, you know, provably will not suffice to let you determine that, right? And so likewise, for all I know, there could be fixed questions where, you know, may, maybe the hard problem of consciousness, maybe why is there a universe where what we currently consider to be an explanation just will not suffice to ever explain these things. Right. Um, but, but, I, but I don't know, I, you know, uh, uh, I feel like um, 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 unlike Deutsch, you know, I don't want to assert that I know the answer from first principles. I, you know, I, uh, I want to continue looking for explanations of these things. Uh, you know, it, it can be when you're searching for explanations, you know, it can be psychologically helpful to, you know, assume that the explanation exists. Uh, but, you know, but, but uh, let's, let's not make that into more than it is, right? Let's not take a, a useful heuristic and elevate it into a basic principle of reality. Right, uh, but, but on, uh, on this point, um, 
Deutsch wrote a book in uh, The Fabric of Reality where he talks about how Godel's incomplete in this theorem actually um, verifies the importance of creativity. So that if we need to come up with new axioms to prove a busy beaver of 800, that's, that's the entire point of creativity. And um, as far as like, I think he thinks the hard problem of consciousness can be solved, but even if it can't be solved, like the reason it's so hard is not because uh, it's not an artifact of our mind. It just seems like we can't imagine a possible mind. And that might, that might itself be an artifact of our mind. We can't imagine a possible way that you could solve it regardless of what kind of mind you had. The, yeah, the final question is what advice would you give to a 20 year old who is interested in technical subjects? Not, maybe he's not doing a PhD program like you were at the time, but just in, yeah. in college, interested in technical subjects. Um, just uh, learn all that you can. I mean, you know, there, there, uh, you know, has never been a time when sort of more resources were available to anyone who wants to to, to learn things. So, so, uh, um, you know, take courses, talk to your professors. Um, um, you know, go 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 on the internet and uh, or, you know, read read, read books. Uh, you know, delve deeply into a, a subject, and um, uh, you know, and and, and uh, you know, you, you might be surprised at uh, sort of how how low the barriers sometimes are, right? They're like, if you you know, you know, let let let's say that it was quantum computing that you were interested in, right? It doesn't have to be; it could be anything else. But you know, if you you know the entire literature of quantum computing pretty much is available for free on you know on archive.org and uh, you know if you go and like look every every night at the new quantum computing papers that come out and just flag the ones that are interesting to you and read them you know each paper will raise new questions that that the authors don't know the answer to or yet uh, and, you know, sometimes they'll be explicitly listed in an open problem section, you know, other times, you know, there'll be ones that you could think of. And, uh, you know, you can, um, uh, you know, you can study those problems, uh, you know, if you have ideas about them, you can, uh, you know, talk to, to the authors of the paper. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you know, it, 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 it might, you know, it might take, you know, years or decades to become, you know, an expert, like in a whole field, uh, 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 you know, and you might be very far from that, but it really doesn't take that long to become the world expert on one particular tiny little problem, right? And, um, you know, so, so try to, you know, become the world expert on, on something, you know, you know, even something very, very narrow, right? And, and, you know, once you've done that, then you can, you know, write an article about it or, you know, do a, do a project about it. And then, you know, that will lead to more things, right? It will lead to, uh, you know, maybe collaborations in the future, uh, you know, and it will lead to, you know, you, you can then try to become an expert on something a little bit wider and something a little bit wider and so on. Yeah, that, that, that's very yeah. excellent advice. I love that. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, Professor, right. thank you so much for your time. Hey. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends and posting it on social media. Word of mouth is incredibly valuable for a new and a small podcast like this one. So thanks for watching. Mm -hmm.